Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 365th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Rob Nelson. Rob is the CEO and founder of North Rock Partners, an RAA based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that oversees $5 billion in assets under management for 1,500 client households. What's unique about Rob, though, is how while many advisory firms increasingly talk about being more than just their client's financial advisor and instead their entire personal CFO, Rob has been able to scale Northrock up to $5 billion of AUM to offer such a breadth of services from bill paying to tax preparation to supporting clients in their bank lending, all while still charging an AUM fee that is similar to firms with a less comprehensive experience by leveraging the economies of scale he's been able to create his firm size. In this episode, we talk in depth about the growth strategy that Rob's firm has executed over the past six years to grow from $1 billion to $5 billion in AUM, including organic growth from current clients, many of whom are corporate executives and professional athletes with very strong cash flow and ongoing contributions and savings. Strong new client asset flows from referrals as current clients refer peers who could benefit from Northrock's high-touch service in their personal corporate and athlete circles and opportunistic acquisitions of both larger and smaller practices that are willing to do a transaction with Rob because they want to offer their clients the comprehensive service that Northrock has staffed up to provide. Let's talk about how Rob structured Northrock to allow its advisors to leverage the expertise of centralized expert teams covering investments and insurance and other planning areas while remaining the advisor as the primary relationship manager of the client themselves. How Rob has expanded his leadership team to match the needs of the growing firm, but finds that in a growing business, there are always still more leadership gaps to fill. And how Rob recently decided to sell a majority stake in Northrock to a larger holding company instead of taking money from a private equity firm because he felt it allowed him to get the funding with a longer-term mindset to support Northrock's continued expansion while being able to still maintain discretion over its operations as Northrock grows for the decades to come. And be certain to listen to the end, where Rob shares his firm's approach to hiring, including being crystal clear about the job description of the person it wants to hire and what their typical day will look like, why Rob thinks that repetitive practice, getting as many reps as possible in front of prospects and clients, is the best way for junior advisors to develop their skills, and why, despite already building a large and successful multi-advisor firm with billions of dollars, Rob still thinks that he and his firm have significant untapped potential that they just have to get bigger to fully unlock. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Rob Nelson. Welcome, Rob Nelson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Excited to be here. And and Michael, thank you for everything you do for our industry. I've been looking forward to this podcast. I appreciate it. I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation today as as well. And and getting to like nerd out a little bit on on really scaling up large advisory businesses and and the dynamics that come as we start expanding our services. Uh, You know, I, I feel like there's been this trend out there we're seeing more and more over the past couple of years of advisory firms going beyond I call it just not just the traditional portfolio management because we're doing more financial planning advice but even beyond portfolio management and financial planning uh 
advisors going deeper into tax, going deeper into estate, uh, doing even more accounting work if they got small business owners, getting getting more and more specialized in services beyond that traditional financial planning realm. And and for a lot of advisory firms that. You know, just sort of like we we make those steps one one step at a time. Hey, I um I I've been thinking about uh having us do tax preparation for our clients, so like I hired a CPA and they're going to do uh, 127 returns for our clients this year. Or you know, we think it would be neat to start doing estate documents for our clients, and my business partner is also an attorney, and he's technically got a separate law firm. And so we do a thing back and forth with the clients, but the clients can get their estate documents done all basically under one umbrella. And and it's a lot of kind of, hey, we're doing this thing for a segment of our clients. We hired a person to do that. And I know you you have been living this journey, but at a, at a whole other level of size and scale, you do this with well over a thousand clients and many billions of dollars and and a and hundred plus team members. And so I'm I'm really... Interested and excited to talk today about what it looks like when you try to start introducing and scaling these sorts of expanded service models and and you actually have to scale them with multiple people doing the thing in a department for a lot of clients on a systematized basis and and what what that journey looks like as you scale up those portions of the business. Yeah, I, I, the, uh, it is a journey. And then just anytime we, we, for probably for the rest of my career, we're going to have our list of the next 10 services that we want to expand and think about from our, for our clients. But you hit on the key thing. It's, I'm always thinking about, can I scale it and can I be amazing at it? And if, if we can't do, if it can't be both, we're, we're, we're not going to do it, then we'll continue to outsource it. But for us over time, it's been simply from the beginning. I mean, from, for over this last 30 years, it's just, what are the pain points of my clients? What can I provide from a value proposition for them that makes sense in given the concentration of everything that we want to do? Yes, in a financial advice, financial planning, or just period advice in general. And so this is always on our mind and happy to talk about it. So I think to, to kick off, just help us understand the advisory firm as it exists today. Okay. Yeah. Uh, North Rock Partners, our, our company, uh, we're based out of uh, home bases is, is Minneapolis, but we're doing work. I think we're doing work out of 45 states uh, right now as an organization. So our clients are pretty dispersed across the across the country. Of course, we have uh, concentrations of clients in Minnesota, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, Arizona, New York, Boston, and so on. But um, we're doing work across the country. A lot of our clients are, are, are you know, have moving professions. Uh, they're corporate leaders that are getting relocated, professional athletes, and, and so on. And so we've continued to, to build around them. But North Rock Partners, the organization, uh, we've, we have $5 billion of direct assets. Uh, we've been on a pretty fast ride of growth here. Uh, I think just in 2017, we were at a billion. So we've been growing pretty quickly. We're kind of getting prepared to double in size again over the next 24 months as we continue to grow. And a lot of our organization is just responding to the growth of our clients. Our clients are coming into success. And from the beginning, we've always just built services around them. And so as we're providing support to a client, I mean, our business was built on a lot of, we work with a lot of corporate employees, corporate leaders. If we're working with a corporate employee, uh, most of our corporate employees are directly depositing their paychecks with us. Uh, we're providing them the right stream of income on a monthly basis. We probably have 50 clients. We pay all of their bills. The majority of our clients, we pay some of their bills. 
Uh, we, we're, we're, we're hands-on on all banking activities, especially uh, lending. We'll run all lending activities from A to Z. Uh, we do tax preparation. We file taxes in all 50 states. We manage all lines of insurance, life insurance, disability, long-term care, property casualty. We're very hands-on on employer benefits. Uh, we have a charitable arm called Foundation X. So if clients charitable client and charitably inclined, we're going to run all charitable giving on their behalf. Uh, all investment assets, um, 95% of our clients, we have oversight of their entire balance sheet of investments. So when they log into our website or our app, they're going to see all assets as of last night's close or last valuation date. That includes 401k deferred compensation. We custody uh, everywhere. Uh, so we're going to log in. We're going to trade in the 401k. We're going to manage the deferred compensation plan uh, and so on. So we're, we're managing all investments, directed private investments uh, as well. Uh, legal and estate also hands-on internally. We're managing um, all of the estate plan from A to Z. We'll do everything but draft the documents. Biggest reason that we're not drafting documents is the uniqueness of having it needing to be drafted out of each state that the client is located in uh, as an organization uh, and so on. So it's just as our clients have kind of anything that's going on in their life, executive compensation, we're, we're managing the stock option, corporate compliance, holding limits, and so on. So in the spirit of uh, working with a client, as they have life happening, we tend to be at the center and you end up with these strong personal relationships, uh, kind of the uniqueness and probably one of the best things about our business models, because you're supporting the clients on all of those aspects, our communication with clients tends to be pretty often. I mean, I, you know, if you have a corporate employee, let's say that uh, they have a $4 million of investment assets. Uh, and two, two children, and, and, and we're helping them from an, uh, all, all aspects of planning, they're probably interacting with our office every two or three weeks because a big expense happened and they needed to need some money pushed into the checking account or it's benefits time or we're doing their taxes or we're making a tax payment on their behalf or uh, we need to update an estate plan or they got a notice from their 401k provider and they're forwarding it on. And so you end up with this strong level of interaction. And of course, what ends up is you, you know, as you're responding to those needs and following up with clients and every person that I feel is interacting with our clients or clients are going to like and enjoy the interaction, you build these very strong levels of trust and important personal relationships. And from our, from our standpoint, having strong personal relationships allows you to have better advice. You know the client, you know what makes them tick, you know what's, what's important for them from a priority perspective, and you can really tailor that advice given not just the financial side, but the personal side in working with them. But that's the the quick version of our business model and supporting supporting clients. I mean, that's that's a corporate employee, but it's that same version of that if we're working with a professional athlete or if we were working with an entrepreneur, we're going to be leaning in on whatever their planning needs are. So, so how many clients is it for this five billion dollar asset base? Yeah, it's a it's a you know right now our number of clients is fifteen hundred, but that's a little deceptive where. Um, you know, we probably have about 700 clients that we kind of consider personal office clients, meaning that we're collectively managing all aspects around them um, in a kind of almost a family office type of approach. But then uh, we have, we probably have 500 clients that are our clients' kids, parents, siblings. So like for some of our best clients, a strong part of our value proposition is supporting the next generation and, and their planning needs as well. But, um, you know, seven, 800 clients that so we're providing that kind of that deep, comprehensive support um, as, a, as an organization. Okay. So when I think about like five plus billion dollars and, and sort of 700-ish clients in the, in the core before you get the add-ons, like 
if I napkin math that, that's like seven seven million dollars per per client. Does that feel like the right neighborhood? Obviously, there's a distribution around that, but is is that is that kind of typical midpoint client for you? Yeah, it might be a little bit less than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're like a, a big part of our business is clients that have complex needs that have more than twenty million. We have a, a lot of those clients, but I, w- I would say the you know if I would just take the average, it's probably in that four to six million dollar uh, range is a, is a very typical. But our, our fastest growing part of our business is those that are complicated. You know, a quick example on that is it always sounds great when you've got uh, a large list of professional athletes, but probably more than half of our professional athletes are just getting going. You know, they have less than four or $5 million in investment assets. They're just kind of coming into it. They're in first contract and so on. So they're growing. They have all the complexity of somebody that has 10 million. They just don't have 10 million yet. Um, but so that's, uh, that's what makes our, our client base a little more unique. So, so then what does this look like from the, the team end? How, how many uh, team members are there at North Rock doing all, all the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, right now we have about, uh, we're almost at 140 team members growing fast. Uh, we're about to go through a growth moment here at the end of the year as we have a large firm joining us as an organization. But um, we, and how we think about the team and the structure is, you know, what we, well, what I grew up with was that strong personal relationship. You're that advisor sitting across the table from the client. And that's, that's still a core of what we are. You know, you're, you want to keep the relationship simple. You want to know the client. But behind the advisor, we break out all advice by teams. So we have an investment team, insurance, tax, banking and bill payment, legal and estate, and charitable. And every one of our clients has one of those team members assigned to that client. So as the advisor is getting prepared for a meeting, they're going to be collaborating with each of their advice team partners and getting prepared and kind of the one of the benefits of that is you have two sets of eyes, a lot of times more than that, but two sets of eyes on almost any component of advice that's going in front of the, of the client, the advisor leads it. And so as we build the organization, I'm building my investment team, I'm building my tax team, I'm building my legal and estate team. And so I also view that we have a scalable organization, meaning that you know, right now uh, over the next uh, two, two months, we're gonna be adding an organization that has a billion of assets and very like-minded advisors I know exactly how many tax professionals I need to, 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 to build on. I know exactly the number of investment professionals. I know that I need to add an attorney uh, and so on. And that's kind of how we think of it is building components of advice. Because, you know, what happens is, is when I add those two additional tax professionals, what ends up happening is the tax team gets better. And then that has an impact on all of my clients. And so we're very motivated to grow the firm because the firm is that the growth is designed to get us better every step along the way. Otherwise we wouldn't grow. And that's kind of the, 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 the secret to the success of building this model that creates scalability, but also creates quality. So, so what were the teams again? Like I'm just trying to process through, there were, there were a number of teams there. Yeah. You've got investments. Okay. Insurance, tax, Banking and bill payment, legal and estate, and charitable. Okay, so so as I think about a high level, like the advisor sits in a very relationship manager oriented chair, and these six departments become their, I guess, both internal resources. But it sounds like 
even beyond that, like there will be a person from each of these departments signed assigned to any particular client. So from the client end, like I've got a probably like seven person team, my advisor and someone from each of these areas that I'm that I may be engaging in who all get to know me and my situation. Am I, am I thinking about that right? Uh, close, yeah. I mean, it's uh, if you have a comp. Uh, let's actually go to let's go to a client that maybe it's more straightforward. A client that has four million dollars of investment assets. Their relationship might only be just with the advisor, a dedicated client service person, and then they they, they likely will have some interaction with a tax professional throughout the year as they're doing tax planning. The the investment planning would be led typically by the advisor, even though the advisor might be collaborating behind the scenes with the investment team member. The, the advisor is going to be front of facing. The, the advisor will be leading the insurance component. The advisor might even be leading a good chunk of the estate planning conversation, if not all of the estate planning guidance before the attorney comes in into it uh, and so on. But as it gets more complicated, you've got a, you've got a $30 million uh, family and they're starting to get into more complex estate planning. Now we might bring in an estate planning professional or now we might bring into the, the investment lead uh, into, the, into the relationship just to have it where the client can hear it firsthand and have more technical components of advice and lean in with the advisor. But the spirit is to try to keep the, you know, a lot of our clients are, we're trying to simplify their lives, not make it more, make it more complicated. And so that's the spirit of it. But um, it, it's really having team members lean in as needed based on what's the complexity of the client situation. So how many clients does an advisor support in this structure? Yeah, it, it, it'll be, it's, it, um, the reason I pause on that is because it depends on the complexity of their client base. I would say on average, the, every one of our advisors has a path to have less than 100 clients. Almost all of them do have less than 100 clients because, again, the, the idea you're doing a lot for a client. You know, there's a complexity, there's a comprehensiveness, a true comprehensiveness to the advice. And so you want them to know, be accessible to the client and so on. So now we have advisors that have an average client that's 20 million or 30 million, they're going to work with maybe a dozen or, or, or 20 clients. And then you have, we have some advisors that are kind of up and coming and their average client size is, uh, you know, 800,000 or a million. They might work with uh, 130 clients, 140 clients, depending on the situation and what's going on. But the, the idea is, is that every advisor is going to know their clients well, likely is going to have under a hundred clients in general is uh, how it's set up. So, so how do you figure out where those thresholds are? I mean, I, I get it conceptually, like, you know, if you have more complex clients, you you don't need to have as many of them, but then you do that across lots of advisors in a large enterprise firm where, where you have to figure out some like policies and procedures to oversee this and make sure everyone's getting their, their, their fair client count. Like, how do you figure out in this, in, in practice? I mean, do you, track hours? Do you look at revenue productivity? Is there something else? Like, How do you actually figure out, does my advisor have that many complex clients or are they just not taking enough of them? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and let me know if I don't answer the question on this, Michael, but where a lot of it starts is every time we have a prospective client come to the firm and I'm having that conversation or one of our leaders is having a conversation with that prospective client about who they are and what they need from a financial advisor, and so on, I tend to think of identifying the right team or the right advisor in two fronts. One is, who's the right advisor from a competency perspective? Who's going to be able to keep up with this client situation and is the right fit? And then I'm also thinking about it from a personality perspective. Like, who's going to be able to have a lifelong relationship that like, like represents this client and who they are? And, 
you know, that's the spirit of setting up these lifelong relationships. Our, our, our client retention tends to be 99, 98%. And it's because you're building a foundation of a relationship, but it's also, they've got the right advisor for their future. An advisor that can grow up with them is how we think about it. And then in addition to that, you know, we're closely working with our advisors, managing their team structures. Uh, you, you know, I've been doing this long enough. And so have my senior partners that have been working with me to, to recognize you have an advisor that has a, a you know, a million dollars of revenue that they have oversight and they have, you know, one staff person. You, you, we can see the number of clients that they're serving. You can see the effectiveness and the efficiency of their schedule. You can, you know, how many team members that they should have. And sometimes if they, if they are leaning on too many team members, then there might be a, a growth or an education moment where we need to develop them from components where you're gaining efficiencies. So some of it's practice management of knowing where they're at and, and what they should be. And then, of course, listening to the advisor, where, what are their pain points if they're running into capacity? You know, we don't want to with the advisors, you want them to enjoy this, too. You know, we want to have an amazing relationship with the client, but you want the advisors to enjoy the experience, you want the client service team members to enjoy the experience with the with the, with the clients as part of the process. But it, so there's a practice management component that's a big part of our business and continues to be a big part of our business. But it's really connecting the right clients with the with the right team. So when you talk about like, you know, are, are the advisors do they have the right number of team members? Are they relying on on too many team members or the team members too much? So help me understand more. Like what I guess what, what does that mean? Like what is what is an advisor team in this context? And you've got like there's you know pods of advisors that have direct support, but you've got this teaming framework across the six departments. So I'm just trying to visualize like what is what does an advisor team mean in, in your world? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So let's say, let's go a little bit, uh, let's say you have an advisor that's a little further along in their career and they have 3 million of revenue. They're working with 90 clients. Um, that advisor might have three client service team professionals supporting them in their relationships. So we'll have the advisor working across all 90 relationships, leading the advice. And then they'll have a client service one client service person appointed to each one of those clients, but they might be working across two or three client service people to get all of the work done. It's also very common where the advisor might have well, what we call an advisor partner, where there's a, a senior client service person or a junior advisor that's supporting the advisor on kind of day-to-day -day, uh, advice for the client. And, and it's more straightforward advice. So the client calls and you know, has a question on their 401k, the advisor partner might answer, uh, might respond to that, or they have a question in re regards to a, a change in their employer benefits, or they, they, they want to go through an investment. And more specifically, if it's more simple advice, you might have team members jump into that with the, with the client. Now, they, those people are going to know the client well. Those are people that are in client meetings, interacting with the, with the client along the way. But my point there is, you know, you have a million dollars of revenue. You might only have one client service person because that's all you need to get the work done. You have three million in revenue. You've got more, and the revenue tends that the work tends to follow the revenue. You've got clients that have more complex needs. They tend to have more interaction with the firm, and you have need to have more people lean. I wish, I wish it wasn't that way. You know, you wish you just at some point in time you just wouldn't need to continue to add the team members, but the work always does follow it as uh, as clients' lives get more complicated. And so that's kind of the team that's working hand in hand with the client. And then the next level of of team that's working with the advisor is what I mentioned before is each client is being assigned to one of those advice team members. And those are actually uniquely assigned to the client based on the complexity as well. So you won't have, the, it won't be the same investment team member across the same client base for that advisor. 
because the investment team member, certain investment team members are made for $30 million clients. And then there's certain investment team members that are made for $400,000 clients. And so we even segment the components of advice into the advice teams. And that's become very efficient. It's actually from a client side, it keeps it simple. And for the advisor, they're just working closely with their, their client service team on a day in, day out basis and supporting the clients. And then whoever's assigned to the, to the client and supporting the advice. And, and all these dynamics around, as I think, like judging complexity. I don't mean that the negative version of judging. So like making determinations of capacity and assigning team members and assigning the, the, um, the specialized team members based on complexity. Like who, who, who figures out who, how complex the client is. Like I just, who makes the calls about which advisors get which resources and which clients get assigned to certain, uh, expertise team members based on their complexity. Yeah, that uh, I'll jump around a little bit on that. that. That probably comes at it from two or three different angles. You know, each advisor is looking to grow their practice as well. And so the advisor, let's say you're an advisor and your primary clients are corporate employees and your average client size is, is uh, 2 million in assets. And so you're working with clients that have, you know, some, some, some straightforward needs from a, from a planning perspective. And then they, they get referred into somebody that has $30 million and it's, a, it's an entrepreneur, it's a small business owner. What the advisor would be able to do is do one of two things. They would be able to refer that to another advisor that, that specializes with entrepreneurs and can handle more complexity. Or they might bring that advisor in as, as a partner in the relationship and still continue to be the lead. And they would be able to make that decision on their own and we're okay with that. That's one way. Or, you know, a lot of new, uh, new prospective clients are coming direct to our firm. They might be coming through me or other senior advisors that are, you know, they're no longer working directly with, with clients. And then we would take the responsibility of identifying, you know, as I mentioned, the, you know, getting to know, having a meeting or two with a prospective client, what their needs are, who they are as people, and can we fulfill, you know, are we the right fit for them as an organization? And then identifying the, the right team for them. As a whole, those are the two common ways that we're connecting clients uh, with the right team members. But sometimes it's also going to be led by by the advisor that's uh, onboarding. So as you go through these this structure with these specialized departments supporting around in insurance and tax and banking and bill pay and and charitable and I was going okay, domains that we don't tip, don't always typically get into is as financial advisors, at least not at an implementation level, doing bill pay for clients. How does the fee structure work? Do do clients pay a core advice fee and then kind of a, a la carte for add-ons? Do you wrap it into one? Are there uh, adjustments? Like, how does this price? Yeah. Uh, for us, we try to keep it simple for the client. And about two-thirds of the time, we do set up the fee as a percentage of client's Total investment assets, no, total investment assets, no matter where they're held, um, and then uh, and then all services just wrap up into that. So, if you have a client that has four million dollars of investment assets, let's say that the their total fee is you know, uh, 0.9% or 0.85%, we 
there, there wouldn't be an additional fee for tax. There wouldn't be additional fee for us to handle cash flow planning or insurance support or to help them on managing their, their estate planning or handling the day-to-day charitable gifts and so on. Just everything is incorporated into that fee. The only time they might have additional fee is to where the, we have an attorney drafting documents or something like that. So that works the majority of the time. The other third is where we, we charge just a fixed fee. It's a set fee based on the scope of services. You know, an example that I just mentioned is you have a you have an up and coming uh, professional athlete. They just got their first contract. They they have four hundred thousand dollars of investment assets. Um, they're living in multiple cities. Uh, they're working in multiple cities. They have all the complexity of somebody that has five or ten million dollars of assets. They just don't have it. And so we might set up a fixed fee based on everything that we're delivering because you just you just know the complexity. You know how it should be priced. And we'll set a fixed fee until maybe the assets grow and we can change it, change it over to a variable. That percentage fee, when we're charging that, it tends to be on a sliding scale. You know, as a client's assets grow, uh, the fee as a percentage will go down a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the work doesn't grow pr- proportionally typically right. with, with, with assets, but it, it does, the work does follow and does grow. And we've been, we've had a fee schedule that's for us is, I think we've had it in place for 15 years, something like that, that does work. Um, and it just sits and we continue to monitor and maintain to make sure that it does line up from a complexity and scope. But that's, uh, that's the general way of how we think about pricing, but trying to keep it simple. So where, where does that start for you? So I know a lot of firms actively debate, like, should these sort of assets under advisement fees that cover a wide range be lower or different than a traditional AUM fee where you're hands-on managing the portfolio? So where where do you set this fee schedule? Like where, where does it start? Where does it break point down to for you? Yeah. The, our, for, for clients, it'll be anywhere from 1.25% to 0.5% is kind of the range. You know, normally as it goes over 30 million of assets, that's where we start to gravitate towards, you know, uh, 0.5, 0.6% is pretty common uh, as, as it goes. Same thing. We, we, we have clients that have, you know, $50 million where you, you've got them at 0.7 just because the, the work is following it where you're you're negotiating with the clients. But, you know, that's kind of the spirit for us. You know, we have a very transparent fee. And, and so the client can see it and they can feel it. And then that for us, the most important part is they can also, so they, they can see and feel the fee. They can also feel the value proposition and those two need to add up. And, and so for us, um, you know, making sure that we're, we're being fair with the client. We've set up appropriate price based on what the value proposition that's being delivered. And right now, it just, it's just the, the fee. Our, our clients are very complimentary and we don't, we don't get a lot of pushback on it. Well, I'm struck. I mean, you're, the, the fee schedule you're talking about is not, not significantly different than where I, I think just most advisors are in general. We, you know, we have fees at somewhere between one to one and a quarter at the bottom end. And we and we get to to break points around zero point five percent at the uh, uh, at the upper end, and and it sounds like from your perspective, you know, because of the breadth of what you're doing, just you may have assets under advisement, you may not be directly like managing them uh, in a in a custodied relationship, but that doesn't particularly change fee structure for you. Like it's a holistic offering. Don't really care where your assets are. We'll help you with them wherever they are. This is our all-in fee structure to do that. It is, you know, and that works because 
you know, what will happen is, that, you know, the, the, the once a year you get a client that says, hey, walk me through my fee structure again. And then you walk them through the fee structure. And it's, it's you know, and we, we have a lot of clients that are in the money management business that are mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, investment analysts, CFOs, you know, smart enough to be able to do this. They just don't have enough time and we're leaning in. But, you know, yeah. they'll ask us questions thinking about it from an investment management perspective saying, you know, does my fee right now is at 0.7%. And, you know, I've got this money in bonds and I've got this money in cash and should, should that be right? And then we, we talk about say, you know, the fee is based on scope of services and investment management is definitely a big part of what we do. But remember, remember we're going through and we're helping you to put together the plan and that lending strategy. Remember like we're, we're doing your taxes and they've been getting more complicated because remember Peggy's got that small business that we've been working with. And then we've been, been very proactive on your estate plan and helping in that. And remember we restructured your insurance and then we're helping you in the property casualty. And then the client stops in the middle of, of the conversation and say, I get it. Yep. No, makes sense. I'm, I'm good. Thanks. And so you, we just, you know, it's just making sure that people understand the depth of what we're doing. And we're always able to point to that and, Go back to what I mentioned at the beginning is we have so much connectivity with clients that you can always show and walk and talk them through what we're delivering. They can feel what you're delivering. And so that helps us to be able to overcome that objective. So what does this look like from a, I guess envisioning like a, a staff structure, like an organizational chart per perspective. It's just, I mean, you've got a lot of people between the advisors and all these different specialized team areas and, you know, just the management and operational overhead it takes to run the business at, at at your size so like how does this work in in just managing the like the leadership and organizational chart overhead to make sure all the all the different things that are supposed to happen are happening yeah that's that's probably the most transformational component of what's happening for our business right now because i'll make it up uh but i you know 10 years ago we we maybe had one full-time leader you know, you just, it just, all of us were, I, I always say part-time leaders where you've got an advisor that's leading clients and they're leading the client service team. And then you've got another person, you've got a tax professional who's, who's leading a bunch of client work and they're leading the tax business and, and so on. But what's happened for us over this last three and four years that we've been investing in is dedicated, thoughtful leadership on, on every component. So each of our advice teams um, has a, has a leader um, dedicated that's leading that business and we'll continue to build structure uh, around that. And then now we're all, you know, we've got, I've got a president for our business named Sean Bannon, who's leading the, you know, almost all components of the business uh, on a day in, day out. I've got a leader of our sports and entertainment, Aaron Ryan, who's got a background, amazing background in sports. He's leading the sports business. I've got a person who's leading our, our hockey business uh, morning, noon and night. We've got a CFO who just came in. We've got a leader of our people. We've got a, a leader of our, our legal uh, and so on. And so we're We've been bringing leaders in and we have a leader of uh, overseeing our advisors. We've got somebody leading, overseeing our client service, somebody leading our, our compliance components of our business, somebody leading our marketing. And so now having somebody waking up in the morning every day, thinking about our marketing plan, which was used to be me, is, is, is kind of the change moment. And that's actually been leading to the acceleration on everything, the acceleration of the growth of our business, the acceleration in the quality the professionalism, you know, we, we, we've been becoming a professional firm, but it's also to the quality of the work, building process and systems and that scalability element has been the game changer where I can see what's possible of what this can become with excellence. But it's been the, the leadership aspect is very new to our business, but that's been our approach of how we've been continuing to build around. So... So now, though, just take me one step further. Like that was 
I mean, that's fascinating here, but like that's so many people, like I'm assuming all these leaders don't actually report up to you. Or are you still going to have like 14 direct reports in the really busy week of meetings? Uh, like, how do you structure this? Who 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 reports to who just to to keep track of that many leaders doing that many things across such a broad business? Yeah, that's a, a good question. You know, uh, broadly, I'll try to maybe oversimplify it a little bit. We tend to break it up by the the wealth management components of the business and the operational components of the business. So our president uh, of our business, Sean, who has oversight of all of the, the organizations that have P&Ls, but he has oversight of our more of our operational platforms. So our, our people, finance, um, our, our legal component side of our business, our giving aspects of our business, um, tech, you know, operations and technology, he'll oversee that. And then we have leadership structure that's for our what we consider our, our wealth management or our advice business. So the, the, the leadership that's overseeing our advisors and our advice teams. And, and my partner, uh, Todd Mosier, oversees those businesses and then has the, the leader of advisors reporting to him, the leader of our advice reporting to him. Um, and then all of those uh, leaders that, are, that are, have advice responsibilities will be reporting up uh, through that part of the organization, but that's kind of how we're separating the operational components of the business, but also our, our advice side of our business are, are how we're breaking up the, the leadership side. Interesting. So so you end out with kind of three people at the top, you, Sean, who has all of the operations side of things, so people, finance, legal, ops, tech, all those core components, and then Todd has the wealth management advice side of the business. So the financial advisors, the advice teams, because of the the depth you've got in the advice teams, that all rolls up through uh, through Todd's side. Totally. Am I, am I thinking about that well? You are, and you know what's and like every business, we know that we've got three leadership gaps. I mean, I'm, I'm making up the three number, but we have three leadership gaps all the time. So you just as the business grows, what's our next leadership? Like I know right now that uh, Todd and I were just talking about this earlier today is that we need to have a dedicated leader of all of the advice teams, somebody that, that all advice teams leaders roll up to, not only just for leading those teams, but leading advice. Like I want to have somebody waking up every morning, thinking about the entire quality of advice for the a complete organization and, and then driving that across our advisors and our teams and then it's collaborative. So it's not just, you know, there's so many of the, uh, there's so many things in execution of advice that go across teams. You might be doing a tax strategy that impacts the charitable team, the tax team, and the investment team. And so you need those teams working in unison to get the work done. And so being able to come up with amazing strategies that we can execute across the entire client base is what's next. But we want to have an, we want to have an advice leader for that, you know, or, you know, we, we have enough going on where we should probably have a dedicated COO. And, we, and, 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 and so on. So we're always thinking about who's next, what's next as the organization gets to the next level. You know, in our investments, as an example, we've got enough volume going on in private markets where we want to have a dedicated leader of leading our private market work and, and so on. And that's just listening to the business of what's the tug and pull uh, as we move forward, but uh, being thoughtful about it, of what, uh, what we can handle or what we can afford. Well, I'm, I'm struck by this even as you're talking about it, because I think for most advisory firms, they would envision like so, somewhere by the time you get to 100 employees, you're you're supposed to be big enough to hire the people you need to do the things you need to do, uh, right? You're supposed to 
you're supposed to be there. I'm putting that in air quotes for <laughs> anybody who can't see in a podcast. Right. Like I'm if I just get a little bigger, I'll be there. I'll have enough resources to hire the people that I need to do the things that we're doing. So I'm I'm fascinated to hear your framing around this of oh yeah, we're five billion dollars and all I can see is like the three leadership gaps that we've got right now and that basically hasn't changed. I mean what the gaps are change. You you have one and you hire a person, you solve that, and then like it's like whack-a-mole. Another is what I'm envisioning. Like an, you, you solve one problem and another one crops up. It's like, oh, well, okay, now apparently that's what we need to hire next. Some of it's around leading the business. Some of it's around expansion of value proposition. It just, you're, 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 you're listening to the clients and their, and, and their pain points of what they're looking for and what success looks like in those relationships. And then it's just effectively leading it, you know, leading change through the organization and quality. I mean, just for the rest of my career and the rest of our careers, the organization just needs to continue to get better. It needs to evolve with the needs of the clients. And so the amazing part for us is that you can continue to build efficiencies through technologies and effectiveness. And that that, that helps to bring costs down. You think about what the cost of doing trading or the cost of managing um, technology across our businesses is coming down. So that helps for efficiency. But at the same time, then we're expanding our value proposition. And it's also probably why our margins have stayed the same for 20 years. Just that you keep on thinking you're going to margin expansion and it never happens. I just... But I'm at peace with that because our value proposition continues to expand and we've got a game plan for that. I was going to ask how this shows up relative to to margins in the business that just, you know, you're, you've got a fee schedule that is not substantively different than what most, advi- most advisory firms do, but you've got all these additional advice teams, you've got all these dedicated leaders across all these different dimensions, they're usually not inexpensive uh, folks to to take on those leadership roles. So how do you like how does this work from a margins per- perspective to be able to maintain margins as you're doing this much hiring into all these areas that other firms often don't have? Yeah, I uh, the last 24 months that's been the kind of a grow up moment for us because you just you know, you've seen this before where you're, you're building the business and you're making the decisions kind of shooting from the shooting from the hip a little bit uh, based on what the needs are. And, and you, you see the revenue streams and you can see the expenses and you're making uh, kind of game time decisions. But now um, for us and we, we have a, a new CFO who joined us about a year and a half ago. who has been just amazing. His name's Rob Bordeaux. Um, now we're focusing on margin targets and that allows us to be a lot more thoughtful on, okay, when are we ready to make the investments? So being intentional about our margins, because there's always going to be that need uh, as we move forward. And then that's also going to have an impact on what we can expand from a service offering. You know, there's a, you got two things that are happening on service, continuing to improve existing services forever. And then also thinking about providing more services that your clients are looking for, but we've got to be responsible for that. But we've come to peace with our current margins even though they're lower than traditionally maybe in the industry, I'm okay with that. You know, if, if I, if I have a margin target, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'll make it up, let's say you have a margin target that's at 30% and, but my business is growing at 30% a year. I'm at peace. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that as we, as we move forward as an organization and we have a range of where we want our margins to be and that we can live within um, as we move forward. But it's, it's just that uh, we've been, been very thoughtful about being responsible about it. I was going to ask just how margin targets work in 
because in your business, in your in your planning environment, so on the on the one end, there's just the you know as we hire a team, the margins go down a bit, and then as we get more clients and revenue, the margins go up a bit, right? That's sort of the natural flow of of business. But in ours, you get this like pesky X factor called the markets that yeah. really mess with your margins when you have a big a big market swing one one direction or the other. You know your 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 margins can move more in a week or even a day from a volatile market day than it does with like the next many hires that you make. So yeah. it just make, I don't know, mechanically, I mean, how, how do you actually set and figure out what your margin targets are and whether they're on track when you've got so much market sort of noise volatility that, that shows up in those numbers? Yeah. Um, you know, markets, as we know, are part of our, our life here and, at this point in time, we are we are subject to what's happening in the markets. But we're what you're talking about is exactly what we're going through right now. We are going to intentionally let our margins drift down as we go into this next year because we're going through a growth moment. Um, we have, you know, we're we're targeting that we will, you know, next year likely have somewhere in a two billion to three billion dollars of growth. Uh, some of it's from organic, some of it's from inorganic growth. And we need to get prepared for that because, you know, like I mentioned before, from a scalability standpoint, I know what the teams need to look like. So until that those new assets come uh, from growth from either from new clients or from our existing client flows or from the acquisition that we're in the middle of, um, we're going to our margins for the next five to six months, seven months are going to be light. But now with having detailed forecasting, yes, taking into account those markets variants and, and what, what they can be from a range. And we know that that can always create additional pain for us. We do the best that we can to be able to live within those ranges. And then sometimes intentionally let the margin margins drift down in the spirit of getting prepared for the next leg of growth. So when you, when you talk about margins drifting down, like how, how much do they drift in your world? I mean, is that, you know, we're letting them go down 2%. We're letting them go down 10% because we, we think this is a big growth opportunity. Like what's, What's yeah. normal variance for you? Yeah, you, you could see we could see a ten percent reduction in margin. I mean, that's, okay. that, that's very reasonable to see in this type of year. We, we we're looking at next year, and we can easily see a billion dollars of organic growth uh, coming our way. Uh, from our clients are going through some really great growth moments. Congratulate, you know, good for them. Um, and we've got to be able to build around and be able to keep up with that. And then. Um, also from our, our pipelines for new clients are starting to pick up so we can see the new business that's about to come our way. And then, uh, as I mentioned, we were planning to be more proactive on, on the inorganic side and starting to add the right types of advisors as we go into next year and getting prepared for them too. And we're having those conversations with the advisors. So now help us understand further just where all this growth is, is coming from, I guess, both this like a billion dollars of pipeline. And I think earlier you said you were, you know, you were 1 billion five or six years ago and you're 5 billion today. So uh, wh where is all this growth coming from? I mean, have you been doing acquisitions all along? Is this just sheer client flows? Where Where's all the money coming from? Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, it's, it's probably, let's go to maybe the three primary channels. Uh, our, our average age of a client is is probably below the the industry average. So we've got a lot of corporate leaders that are in their you know fifties, late forties, fifties that are coming into a lot of success. We've got entrepreneurs uh, that are are in the middle of some big business sales, and so our existing clients next year 
could save somewhere between 500 million and 800 million with us. Um, and then our new clients, like client advocacy is really high. So our, you know, you're just, you're doing good work. You're following through in everything they say you're going to do. We're playing a role in our clients as they're going through big moments in their life. And that leads to our name coming up in a conversation with a friend and then the phone rings. And so, you know, on the, on the new client side, you know, you could have a, a 400 million to 700 million of, our, of organic flows coming from new clients and then uh, being really thoughtful about um, uh, mergers and acquisitions as we go into the next year. Um, as an example, we have a, a team that's joining us. They have a billion uh, in assets, really great advisors, total community and culture fit, looking to expand their value proposition, want to do more on behalf of their clients, want to want to do more from, they want to have, provide better advice. And so, uh, you know, I would anticipate that next year we might have, you know, we might have two, two of those happen, you know, a couple of small advisors, you know, a couple of advisors that are individual advisors join us. And we might have a couple of large firms join us like that. And, and so you've got a combination of things leading to our growth, but that's also the spirit as we go forward and we're adding advisors, it's, we're looking to add advisors that want to master their craft, recognize the responsibility that we have to serve others and to give them amazing advice as they're going through moments, you know, amazing follow through, um, want to work within a team environment, you know, and, and ultimately they want to reach their potential. And so that's in, in our industry that is happening. What's what you have is not only succession plans. So, so you've got advisors that are looking for succession plans. And to their credit, you have more and more advisors that are looking, what is the safest place to put? I know that I'm going to retire in the next five years. Where can I, where can I have my clients transition to? And I know that they're going to be cared for and taken care of. And in our industry, in, in certain marketplaces, we're gaining reputation where advisors know that we're serious about this. We take it we're responsible. Obviously, we want to have fun with our clients, but you know, we're, we're deep relationships. And so we're attracting those advisors that are serious about their succession plan. But we're also... We just added an, an advisor from North Carolina uh, a month or two ago, just an amazing advisor, up and coming, just a rock star of an advisor, late 30s. And, and he's, 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 going, he's great organic growth, but he, he wants to do more on behalf of his clients, wants to expand his value proposition, knows that he can try to build it one employee at a time, like so many of us have done, or he can work with a firm like us and have it overnight. And that will actually accelerate his growth and be able to you know, have be- bigger, deeper relationships with his existing clients. So we're attracting advisors that are like-minded um, and that's gonna that's accelerating our growth. And then also uh, those that are looking for succession plans and then our existing clients advocacy. So it's a combination of things that are tying into our growth at this point. I'm fascinated by, by some of the numbers you put there, both on sort of the, the growth from existing and, and the and the referral flows that I want to, I want to actually come back to a little bit further. So you you said this, you know, essentially contributions from existing clients could be, you said five hundred to eight hundred million next year relative to your asset base. That's you know ten, 10 to fifteen percent growth, right? From five billion with five hundred to eight hundred coming in. Uh, that sounds like is is mostly from. Corporate execs and entrepreneurs, where at this point you already know they've got options or RSUs coming due. It's an entrepreneur that's already in the process of a sale, where you know the liquidity event's going to happen next year. Like I'm presuming it's it's that kind of stuff that that gives you a forecast projection of 
you know, we think we think there's more than a uh, half a billion dollars, more than ten percent organically that's just coming from existing clients making contributions. Yeah, you mean think about like our our people and our athletes in professional sports. I mean, they, they, you know what their contracts are. You know what their saving rate right. is right now. The income is reliable. Um, you can we can walk into next year and you know what they're going to likely net save when it's all said and done. We, we, they're, they're directly depositing their paychecks with us. So all the money in and all the money out is going through um, the, the accounts that we're helping them to manage thoughtfully. And so we, we know what those net flows are going to be. And it, it's becoming much more predictable. Even we're starting to get better at knowing, you know, how many clients are going through big moments of buying the dream home or, or having major outflows for an expense standpoint. And we take that into account too, but it's, it's slowly becoming more predictable um, as we have continued to grow. So have you literally created systems for this to track it or like do advisors log somewhere, you know, tell me about the ongoing savings of your athletes next year and any business owners that are having liquidity events so that we can roll this up across the firm and try to do a business forecast of our growth? Yeah, I think we're on step four of a 10-step program there. I, I've seen that <laughs> some of our advisors are starting to build the systems and some of our and our CFO and our operations platform are starting to, to take that into account. So I can see that we're going to get there, but we're we're just making the progress on being able to have the data analytics to support that type of work. But also because so many of us have been doing this for a while, you can look at a client base. I can look at the, the advisors that are supporting our professional hockey players and I can see the clients. I can see what they saved last year. I can see what the flows have been from their practice the last couple of years. I can see the number of new clients that they've added uh, predictably. And you can get in a pretty good range. You can get in a pretty good range as you, as you think about it. So it's not perfect, but it's getting better. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you had like a mere, th- you know, $300 million swing on that uh, on that estimate. So I get there's, there's some approximation uh, to it, but just I'm... I'm still struck by both your your how dialed in you seem to be in in the predictability of this stage and also just the sheer amount like again 500 to 800 million is 10 to 15% and 16% organic from existing clients it's a much bigger number than most firms have but I I think as you said that speaks to your clientele that are still mostly in the accumulation stage and are very high income accumulators, right? Execs, athletes, entrepreneurs. Yeah, the good the good news is I have a conservative CFO who rounds all of my numbers down. Uh, as <laughs> as, as, as a good CFO should, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And and then talk to us on the as you framed it, the client advocacy side. I am presenting that essentially means referrals, clients that advocate out for you into their into their marketplace, into their peers. So. You highlighted that as you're anticipating 400 million to 700 million in flows. So is that a similar, you know, we just, we, we've got a sense of what percentage of our clients give us referrals in the typical size. We've got enough track record for it that this is what we project. It, uh, yes. The, you know, advocacy is what got us here. You know, I just, I, for forever, you know, for, from, year 29 and beyond 28 and beyond just the kind of the phone has continued to ring. And so we've, we've become, you know, we kind of relied on that uh, and expect it uh, as we move forward. And actually those years that our uh, referrals, our volume referrals decline, you immediately go to, 
you, you look at your your value proposition, you look at your service experience. I mean, is there, are, is, are we, have we changed something? I mean, are, are clients talking about us less? I mean, are we having less of an impact? You immediately go to that. You know, you, you try to hold up the mirror right away. And are we delivering everything that we should or, or we can be? But, you know, four out of five years, we just, we have reliable advocacy from our clients where you're, again, making a difference in their lives. They're talking about it with family and friends and the phone is is ringing and so we do count on it um, as we put together forward forecasts, and uh, and that's it has been a reliable source of our growth. And and is that what the pattern has looked like in the growth over the past several years? Just I'm I'm struck by this sort of hockey stick of growth. No pun intended. Since you have a lot of professional <laughs> athletes. Ah, uh, the thing you said you were you know, you went from a mil a, a million a billion to five billion over just the past six years or so? I mean, did you have acquisitions in there? Is that all client momentum? It is. Um, I actually know that number. My guess of that of that growth, it's probably a third is inorganic and two-thirds is organic. Is It would be my, as my guess is what's got us there. So yes, we've had a couple of um, you know, my partner Todd, who joined us from uh, him and his team from Chicago, that was a large acquisition, uh, a little over a billion for us uh, in 2019. Um, that's our that's our largest to date at this point in time. We've had a couple of small ones um, beyond that uh, for for adding some teams along the way. So we've we've had uh, four or five uh, acquisitions uh, in our in our history, but our anticipation right now as we move forward is to is to increase that significantly uh, going into the going to new year. As I mentioned, we might have two to four of those in, in 2024. So, so help us understand how you think about acquisitions in a, in a world where you already may do a billion to a billion and a half in referrals and contributions from existing. Like why, why mergers and acquisitions on top of that? Um, to get better, I think is my quick answer, but uh, I, I look at, um, I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking about the acquisitions we've had. Every acquisition that we've had, we have gotten materially better as an organization. If you do it the right way, and I'll go back to the, to, to our Chicago team joining us, what did I get from adding that group? There's a little over a billion in assets. I ended up with, uh, I've got four, soon to be five amazing advisors. I mean, just like advisors that care. I mean, they're just, they're passionate about components of advice and the client experience. And so I've got four great, four to five great senior advisors. I have a client team, a team that's supporting clients that are also expanding what we do. But as I add that to a little bit where we were talking about before, we were immediately able to add a couple tax professionals. We were able to immediately add uh, two investment professionals. I was able to add another attorney and it was able to expand the depth of each of those advice teams. And so we see the opportunity for us to get better as an organization in each one of these acquisitions and of course, fill gaps. Um, you know, some of these, you, you know, we have a, a group that's joining us that they have areas of competency that we're light in, uh, such as an example, they have a, they have a, a, an advisor that focuses on entrepreneurs. Excellent. We need to, we're having more business coming to us from entrepreneurs. I need to expand those teams. And so there's a combination of what that does and why we want to do it. Um, but I, I also see it as there's an opportunistic side too, is 
as in our industry with so many advisors are looking to expand their value value proposition and, and us being, I think, a leading firm in depth of value, I, I see this as an opportunity for us to grow thoughtfully with the right people, with the right people that want to master the craft and do great work. And that provides an opportunity for, for all of us. But when Chicago joined us, we got better than we got better and bigger than any of us would have done individually on our own. And that's something I just want to continue to do more of. So as I sort of hear that and process it, I, I, I think about it two dimensions. There's the the outright talent that comes with an acquisition, right? I know in in, in the tech world, sometimes these are literally called aqua hires. Like you you acquire to hire because it's actually easier to acquire the firm than it is to try to like hire and poach away the talent, as it were. Just acquire the whole thing and 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 bring good people on board if if the organizations are aligned in the first place. So I'm hearing a, a part of this is talent acquisition. Like you can you can get talent in acquiring businesses that you can't necessarily get by just hi, hiring, posting a job ad, and and that secondarily. As the organization just gets larger and kind of bulks up on assets and revenue, it allows you to expand the advice teams more deeply because for every X dollars of revenue, you can add Y members to the advice team. So as the organization is bigger, you just get deeper tax team, deeper legal team, deeper insurance team, deeper bill pay team, and so forth. Am I, am I we're, we're, thinking we're, about those well? You are. We're going through that big time. And I can point to two examples right now that are totally top of mind. We are we are very out to market right now where we need to expand the advisors that can work with professional athletes. It just, it, it's, it, you, you, you have to have some experience in it. Um, it, it, it. There's relevancy. There's all kinds of things that go into the ability to effectively work with a professional athlete, relatability, all types of things. And so for us, we're out in the marketplace that we're looking to hire and bring on advisors and acquire firms that have competency already in it because we have more work that's likely coming our way than we can handle. And I need to find the right advisors that can keep up with that. The same thing with complex families. You know, we have what I would consider family offices or complex families that are coming our way. And we're looking for advisors that can keep up with a $50 million, $100 million, $200 million family. And those are hard to find. So as we think about acquisitions, it's definitely going to the marketplace to try to find the advisors that are going to fill and help us to, to, to bring in some gaps as we think to grow the firm uh, effectively. Well, I'm struck by this as well, because I feel like for a number of advisors, you know, when the whole discussion comes up of, should you specialize, you some advisors are concerned of... Well, if I focus on one area, then you know there's other people I can't serve. Am I gonna am I gonna pick something too narrow? But one of the the concerns I've heard crop up from advisors as well is, well, if I if I specialize into a particular area, it may be harder to sell my firm someday because uh, you know it, it, it's got to be someone who wants this particular specialization since I don't have a broad based clientele. But I'm 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 struck as you're framing it here that that basically like you. You basically only want to acquire firms that have specializations that complement the things you already specialize in. Like that's what that's what makes them better acquisition opportunities for you, not not worse. Yeah, I, I, I think you can have. I think there's a combination of both uh, because we're also you know where we're where we're looking to go to the marketplace that we want to expand that we 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 also want to deepen our capabilities uh, beyond what we already have as private markets. 
Um, you, you make sure you hear the pain points all the time within the advisor uh, force of just having competency of those that can handle private market uh, assets. And yep. so I, I can hire those people one at a time, or I can look for the right acquisition targets to expand that and have that be a deeper part of our value proposition. Our examples where we're, I give the example also an entrepreneur, so I'm trying to do a combination, but yeah, on our existing things that we're already great at, and then trying to grab onto areas that we're a little light. So as you explore these kinds of acquisitions, I guess, just from s- someone from your perspective, how do you look at and think about all the private equity M&A that's happening in our, in our industry right now? Because they, they have a different, different story and reasoning than what you're describing, but I'm, I'm sure you bump into them in some firms that you're trying to acquire. I would imagine a few of them have called you as well because ADVs are public, so they, they know where the large firms are. So you know, when you're in this kind of growth mode and doing this kind of acquisition activity, how, how do you think about and look at the private equity acquisitions in our space. Yeah. Talk about a transformational time in our industry related to that. Um, you're, you're definitely running into private equity uh, related to competitive situations, but you have advisors that are, are now recognizing that, you know, what, what's involved in the check. And so I, we, we have a, uh, we're in a really great conversation with an advisor that's before they met us, they had, they had talked to three different private equity firms and they're thinking about succession and they're thinking about what's next. But uh, as we were having the conversation and we're not, we're not going to be at the top of the price range on the economics here. And we're completely in play for this to have this be a, a firm that we acquire because they're thinking about quality of advice. They're thinking about wanting to have a longer time frame. They're thinking about the community and culture. They're thinking about depth of services because the other the two of the three private equity firms that they're talking to, they just want to keep the same model that the advisor already has. You know, they're, they're, the advisor is just doing an investments and they're outsourcing everything. And they're, they can tell that the quality of their advice is suffering related to it. And so as these advisors are making decisions about their clients and the future of their practice, um, it's, I'm finding more and more advisors that are not, it's not about just the, the number one thing isn't about price. It's definitely a factor, of course but it's a combination of what they're trying to accomplish. And with us having so many strengths, as well as being able to step in and be competitive on price, uh, I think we're in a good spot. And and how do you think about it in terms of doing a deal with PE yourself, right? The acquisitions you're doing, I'm sure are, are capital intensive, unless you do all of this as like stock for stock transition. So do you, do you think about taking private equity dollars to accelerate the growth path you're on? Well, your, uh, your, your timing is, is, is interesting just because I'm actually just completing a transaction this week on that. Um, but we did this a little bit different. Um, <clears throat> for us, as we were thinking about our, our future, since 2017, we've had 30% growth. And we have had a capital partner um, over the last four or five years but our growth rate is just above average and trying to find the right firm that can keep up with that has been a challenge. And I think one of those, we started to think about who's the right partner for our future, preparing for growth and of course, expansion of services. One of the challenges that we had in the private equity companies that we were coming across was the short timeframe. Well, in my mind, it's the short timeframe, four years, five years, six years, seven years. And, you know, you, you do a, yep. you bring in a private equity partner that has a five-year time frame. I mean, 
you're two years into a transaction and all of a sudden we're getting prepared for them, them exiting. And it's like, I, I need to, be, I'm thinking 20 year timeframes. I'm planning to do this into my seventies. And we're thinking about setting up the organization as a legacy firm. And so when we, uh, about a year ago, we started a conversation with a really great organization. The company's called Salmon's yeah, that, uh, one of the, one of a very large private company, most people aren't aware of them, uh, located in, in Des Moines, a big business and um, 44th largest private company in the United States with a big business in financial services, uh, insurance, uh, a huge stake in Guggenheim as an example, um, and other investments, but not in the advice business. Uh, yeah, owned as an ESOP, uh, owned as an employee stock ownership plan. And um, we started having a conversation about they wanted to get into the advice side of the business. Um we're looking to grow when we talked about what it could look like. They'd already done their homework about who would be the right partners. And uh, the, the, the firms that they've acquired in the 40s, 50s and 60s are still the companies that they've uh, brought in and that they have equity in today. And so have a long term approach. In addition, addition to that, we've been thinking about employee ownership and expanding our employee ownership base. And so they we literally this week just ended up uh, signing an agreement where they are going to be our long term partner for for, you know, for the rest of our careers as we move forward to not only expand and meet all of the needs that we have to continue to grow, but do it in the right way. I mean, we, we spent so much time about the future of our industry and what it means for quality of advice and maintaining relationships. And the good news is they're not an operating company. They just, they, they're, they're leaving it to, to, to those of us that are living and breathing this every day and where it's incredibly personal, but they want to invest and they're, they want to get into the business for the right reasons. And so, for us, we think we found a very unique type of capital partner type of approach that's sustainable, scalable, and, and will help us to get to the next level. And and so is this ultimately a, a I call it tr- traditional style arrangement, like Salmon's will put uh, dollars into the organization in exchange for equity, like you're, you're, you're selling a minority stake to raise cash capital to... Uh, to invest for opportunities or is it a different kind of deal structure? Yeah, for us, it ended up being a different deal structure because the ESOP, uh, the ESOP approach, uh, they came in, they came to us initially, which was uh, an interest in having 50.1% ownership of the, of the company. And which it, in conversation number one, conversation number two, conversation number three, I, I, I was telling them, I don't think I'm ready for that. Uh, that doesn't represent our future. But the more we talked about what control means and what, what a day in the life looks like for us, not five years from now, but what a day in the life looks like for us 10 and 15 and 20 years from now, and what a path to excellence could look like, it was clear that we were going to be able to carve a path where I could get in the next three years, I could end up where I could be, where I thought I could be seven and 10 years from now. And so we kind of, in a sense, you know, gave them that their ownership stake that they desired um, in, in the firm, uh, getting them over the 50%, but at the same time, allowing us to have control of our destiny and the operational control and a day in the life of, you know, all of the what you would think in the top 10 big decisions that you're going to make in the setting the destiny to control the brand, the technology platforms, the operational excellence, components of advice, who you hire and who you don't hire and so on as we make decisions for the firm. And we just, we got to a really good spot where we felt both, both of us, both parties felt comfortable with that we could live with um, down a collective path for, again, for excellence. 
So like they they get a financial stake that they want, but you've got a a management control component or like a management company structure to be able to drive the the business decisions that you want. Correct, and the, the, probably one of the the best things that came out of it is that you know there's a there's a possibility that if we do this right, that you know North Rock Partners can be around a hundred years from now. Like I can I can build an organization. You know, so many of us want to do that, and then you. And then private equity comes in and, or, or a succession happens and then that, that changes everything. But as I saw their path and plan to ownership, that, you know, for us, I mentioned this at the beginning, is we have so many clients that are our clients, kids and parents in the next generation that we're helping these clients build legacy plans and building of their, they're building in their just amazing legacies. And it's aspirational for us. Like I want us to be an organization that's executing those legacies 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, in a, in a consistent path and plan that we designed today. And it was very unique for us to find a partner that was willing to have that kind of time frame, and actually had demonstrated that kind of time frame in the past with other organizations. And that was really what the draw in here was when we thought about doing this and why we would do this. But ultimately... Yeah, that's what uh, brought us to this point. Interesting. So the so the appeal for you on on Salmon's is that they don't have the PE style time frame. They stay invested for very very long periods of time because they've literally like bought things that they've held for decades. So to you, that's that's the the demonstrated track record that these guys are really serious about. Uh, running with a long-term time window and letting you grow the business with a long-term time window. Yeah, and right now we, um, we're we still working on it, but it's likely that every one of my employees will be an owner in the firm next year. Because that's part of their ESOP style that's is right. to make sure that everyone has ownership. Yeah. Very cool. So as you reflect on this journey, what's surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? As I think about what has continued to surprise me along the way is this, this feeling of never getting there. Like I, mm. I, you know, your first couple of years in the business, you know, you, you know that you have a long way to go and there's so much to learn and you imagine and dream about when you get there, what it's going to look like and feel like. But I'm surprised that I'm, you know, you're 15 years into the business, 20 years in the business, and I'm 20, you know, now I'm 30 years in the business. But when I was 20 years into the business, I was dreaming and thinking about what it's going to look like when I get there, knowing that, knowing that I, I'm incredibly grateful for this journey. And I know that it's about the journey. And I'm just, it's been, I wouldn't trade it just like it's been special along the way. But here I am right now, 30 years into this with an amazing organization, amazing people, and we have so much untapped potential that we have a long way to go to get there. And I still feel that way. And, you know, you just want to get really close to get 80% of the way there sometime, you know, where you feel like you just, you got pretty close to reaching your potential, but it's this path to reaching potential is one of the, been the one of the biggest surprises. But also, you know, the other thing that I think about too, is just the surprise of, of how hard it is to build and find the right team. I just, I made so many mistakes along the way in building the team and the right team and, and how you do it. And I, I've, I've listened to some of your podcasts before of the, the, the challenges that others have made, you know, not being deliberate about how you hire and so on, but I'm at a point in time where 
I've got, you know, I, we have the dream team where we've got this amazing foundation of leaders and people. And I'm, that's actually one of the few areas that I think we've, I kind of feel like I've, I've arrived. I'm arriving where we just, we got to this point where we've got the right team in place, but it was so hard. It was so challenging to get here and so many mistakes were made along the way, but that was probably the other big surprise for me uh, along this way, along the journey. So, so what's been the biggest change from the way you used to hire that didn't work from what you're, what you're doing now that you're feeling, feeling so good about the team that you've got? Um, you know, it's, I, I'm sure other firms, uh, large organizations, this is kind of back to the basics for them, but it's, it's being crystal clear about the job description of who you're hiring and, and what that looks like and, and what a day in the life would look like for them where you can be clear so they can be clear. Um, so being just spending time about the role and the responsibility and dreaming about it and then putting it on paper is one, but things that are hard to hire for, but we're, you know, we're hiring for curiosity. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes I made. I didn't hire for curiosity and so, and I don't know, I still don't know if you can teach curiosity, but I just, so you, you have people that aren't curious and, and we're in an industry where you need to, you're, you know, you're kind of paid to be curious. You just, you need to find the solution. You need to find an answer. And so now, you know, having those types of personalities along the way that are, of course, looking for community and engagement and, and looking to self-develop and, and of course are appreciating in a, a challenging, fast moving type of environment there's things that we're looking for that, you know, any one of those uh, guides can be, or any, any one of those traits can be seem simple, but you put them all together in one person and it's a, it's a challenging hire. But as I'm, what I, I'm so surprised on is like the number of times my people team will come and say, here's the role that we're thinking to hire. And here's the person that we're looking to hire. And I'm, I, I go through the job description. I'm like, I don't think that person exists. That, that this is like way too big of a role. And, and mm. this, you're looking for somebody that's, game-changing, amazing. And then they go find the person like, wow, okay, you can do that. So it's, that's the type of being deliberate about hiring. And we're still, we still have ways to go to improve, but we've made so many amazing steps forward to, to, to be good at it. So what was the low point for this journey? The low point, I, I guess I would keep coming back to, and I always reflect on probably my biggest growth moment too, is uh, when I was 29, um, obviously growing the business, uh, my brother uh, developed uh, leukemia and went through a really tough battle with that for a year. Lived with me while in the cities while he was going through treatment and uh, ultimately passed away. And so uh, I'm 30 and he's 28 and my, you know, my best friend and really close to me. And, and going through that personally and then also the impact that it had on me professionally, um, uh, changed my life. Obviously, you immediately kind of go to understanding what your mortality is and that you're not going to be here someday. But it also, you develop an empathy and an, an, an understanding of people that are going through that moment and we'll all go through it. But here, I just, that I just didn't comprehend or understand. And it's it's also in a, in a unique way, it's, it's benefited me in my life of, you know, being able to, I had a really good friend and team member um, who's been with me forever and her, her father passed away last week and, and just knowing that how to lean in and the role that you should and want to play when people are going through those moments in time, my friends, my clients, my coworkers, 
it's, you know, changed my life, but it was a really a difficult, toughest moment that I've ever been with. And, you know, the other one that I'd probably point to that I think about tough moments is, is when you go through that with clients where I had a, I had a really great friend um, and a client. He's a professional hockey player and he uh, passed away from a drug overdose. And I just, I was a mentor to him and definitely a coach. And I just, uh, the guilt that I had of could I do more or could I play a stronger role as a advisor and did, how could I have missed these things? It took me a long, I'm still not over it, but it's, it, those are moments that I just have been the low moments that I just, I will define you, redefine you as you think about who we are as humans. But um, uh, those would be the quick examples that I would point to. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 20, 30 years ago as you were starting down this career path? You know, what I know now, what I know now, I wonder if I would go back and tell myself. And the reason I say that is I, I, it would be nice to know that by putting the work in that if I I would have known that I was going to make it. But I don't know if that would have benefited me because those first couple of years when I started in this industry, I didn't know if I was going to make it. And that sense of urgency and fear that I wasn't going to make it was a driving force for me. And, and the mistakes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see the mistakes coming because the mistakes so much, they, they benefited my growth and my development and your wisdom and all those first 10 years of the major mistakes that you make and just building a business. Like I just, those are unbelievable growth moments, but I think you don't recognize it when you're in the middle of it. And maybe that's what I would point to just recognizing those times when they're the most difficult, that every major difficult moment I came out that I experienced, I got better. And again, you don't see it when you're in the middle of it, but to understand and recognize that, that that difficult year that you had when you were in your fourth year, that's going to be okay. And you're going to be better on the other side. That might be an example of what I'd point to. So what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors looking to become a, become a financial planner and start a firm today? Um, you know, the common advice that I give, uh, you know, younger advisors, I don't know what you, I mean, advisors that are less than 10 years in the business or we're just beginning is I, I, somebody gave me this 20, 30 years ago and it was, it was a plus E, a plus E equals R activity plus effectiveness equals results. And the reason I'm here is because I had more activity than anybody and everybody else that I started with. I just had such a focus on the number of prospective meetings and seeing clients and meeting centers of influence. I had the highest volume of anybody and everybody that was around me and that activity, those reps, they lead to effectiveness and that effectiveness builds competency, which builds confidence. And then the confidence leads to results. And then the results ends up driving more activity for you. And then it ends up being this snowball and this this recurring cycle. And so many advisors are trying to circumvent activity. Four meetings a week isn't going to get it done. You're just, you're just, you're prolonging the experience to get there. And so trying to bring on one or two or three big clients that are going to solve all of your problems, you know, 
it's not going to make you better. It'll, it'll, sorry, I take that back. It'll make you, it'll make you a little bit better, but you, you, you got to be in front of people. You have to, you have to have a plan for continuing education and development. You got to get smarter. Those are, those are core responsibilities, but activity reps, you, you, that's, that's, and that's a part of mastering your craft and building competency is having sitting across from people and giving them advice. And maybe the other one that I'd point to is mentorship, you know, mentorship, finding the right mentors, not necessarily the mentors that are just about business results. The mentors of the people that are doing this the right way that you, that you want to be like, you know, I, I am surprised, pleasantly surprised at the number of senior advisors that are great advisors that want to give back to the next generation. And, and so you can find those people in your life that are willing to give back senior advisors, or it doesn't have to be advisors, people that you look up to, that you surround yourself, that when you're going through difficult moments, are going to give you good advice and help guide you. I've had really great mentors around me at different times in my life that have helped me push through moments. Even like right now, I've got some really good mentors sitting around me that have helped me to get there. But those are the things that I would point to the development piece. You know, this podcast, these podcasts, like what you're doing, Michael, these are gold. Like being able for advisors to listen into these types of sessions, like if I, this podcast would have been around 30 years from now, I'd change my life. Like, I just like, this is a, like, this is the kind of stuff that I, you didn't have people that or, or the opportunity to listen to these types of stories and so on. So leading into all of those things that I just mentioned, those would be some of the components of advice I'd give the next generation. Well, you got to listen to like the books on tape. <laughs> yes with all that time you had driving around your car for all those activity <laughs> meetings <laughs> i did a lot of that that's a fact so so as we wrap up this is a podcast about success and and just one of the themes that comes up is the the word success means different things different people sometimes different things to us as we go through stages of of business of career so you know, as someone who's built what anyone to objectively call it an extremely successful business as you're crossing 5 billion and, and staring down even more growth from here. So the, the business is in a wonderful place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Um, success for myself. I think I, I think I would define it as impact, uh, impact on others. Uh, even back to when I was a, a teenager, I just, I, I wanted to have an impact on my friends. I wanted to have an impact on, on my family. It was kind of a driving, it was just, just a driving theme for me. And even as I became an adult and, and I became into this business, I just, I, I wanted to have, you know, for my family, I wanted to be a reliable force. I wanted to be somebody that they could count on, somebody that they could trust, but somebody that, you know, through good times or, you know, bad times that they could just, they know that I could, they could lean on me. and. And that's kind of been instilled, I think, through our business is the ability and the the opportunity for us to have an impact on others. Uh, about a month ago, we we had a 30 year anniversary celebration, and we brought some of our clients that had been with us for over 20 years. And these clients shared stories of how we had changed the trajectory of their lives and the impact that we had made on their lives, and helping them to make good decisions and being there with them during very difficult times and playing a strong role. And that's fuel. That's I just, I, we, our organization is very purpose driven because our clients are, are leaning in and telling us that we're having an impact on their lives. And I guess as we move forward, I just, I want us to continue to be able to play that role, not just our clients' lives, but our, our fellow employee lives and our partners and all of those around us. And so 
I kind of always take a step back and think about the impact that I'm having on the organization and, and those around me. And that's, that's probably how I would continue to define success. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, it's been an honor, Michael. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.